Welcome to Herbal Explorations, a podcast hosted by Wilson Lau of New Herbs. Each week, we speak to leading experts about what's happening in the herbal industry. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have my friend Anastasia of Fair Wild on. We've been supporting the great work at Fair Wild that they've been doing in China. And thanks to you all and your hard work in getting the Fair Wild standard approved in China. And with that, New Herbs is trying to get a project certified Fairwild. But we'll talk more about that later. Uh, Anastasia, can you tell us more about a little bit about yourself and um, if there's anything you want to add on about yourself before we begin? Ah, hi, Wilson. Hi. Good to see you. Um, so um, I am wearing a number of hats, as a lot of us do. Um, in my day job, I work um, in a conservation organization called Traffic, and we work to ensure that the trade in wild species um, is not a threat to conservation of nature. And as part of this work, uh, we've been supporting the development and the growth of the Fair Wild Standard and the Fair Wild Initiative. Um, and so a lot of my work involves um, engaging with partners and also um, implementing projects and managing projects in different places around the world uh, where we try to roll out these good practices on sustainable wild harvesting. So working from places um, like India and China through to Namibia, um, Europe, um, a lot of different places where the wild plants grow. So to, to enable the sustainable use. You know, before we start getting to fair wild standards, since, you know, we're talking about the medicinal aromatic plants or maps, what percentage would you say of our maps are wildcrafted? Ah, really, it's a really good question and really hard one to get, right? Um, because this data is notoriously difficult. So as a rule of thumb, um, I would say about 60 to 90 percent of species in international trade are wild harvested. And this is by a number of species. And this is important difference from volume. So mm -hmm. if you were thinking about the volume of species, then the ratio would be reversed. So there is probably between 60 and 90% of cultivated species. And if you think about what this species include, it's the whole range of plant resources used for medicinal and aromatic properties, uh, used as food, as cosmetic ingredients, as nutraceuticals, um, as food supplements, um, and lots of other uses. So a whole range of, of, of plants. Yeah. Yeah. So I love it, you know, by variety, a lot of our plants are wild harvested mm -hmm. by tonnage or volume, you know, then, you know, the cultivated plants now start taking, you know, a larger percentage. You know, it totally makes sense because, you know, we grow, we grow or try to cultivate things that we use more often, right? And then the ones that we might use less often in volume, um, we may not have the incentive to go uh, cultivate that species. Um, what I really love about the Fairwild standard is that it brings a rigor and thorough framework to the sustainability of wildcrafted plants. Um, really, it's the component where organic standard always says you need to do the sustainability assessment for this for organic certified wildcrafted plants, but they don't tell you how. And I think that's the gap where Fair Wild comes in and gives us this rigor and thoroughness that not only addresses 
the sustainability of the environment and the plants itself, but also the sustainability of trade with the with like the fair trade, what we would consider the fair trade component of it or the people element of it. Can you tell us a little bit more about the fair wild standard? Sure thing. Well, I, I genuinely think it's it's the best, um, the best, most rigorous framework out there that focuses specifically on wild harvesting situation. And I think you're absolutely right. This, um, you know, originally fair wild standard has been created as an important contribution to filling a gap that organic certification in particular left, but also fair trade certification. Because the uniqueness of fair wild in, in, is in that it brings together all the different elements of sustainability. So whether you think about ecological sustainability, and by that we mean the sustainable offtake of the target plant from nature, as well as how it affects other species in the nature, be it giant panda or tiger or elephant or other plants. You know, it's about holistic thinking about the management areas and the and the harvesting areas. Um, it also covers fully the social sustainability of wild harvesting, and this is quite unique because, of course, when we when we think about wild crafting or wild sourcing, um, the situation, the labor situation in which people are that are wild harvesting is very different from, you know, working on organized farms um, where Harvesters could be dispersed between, you know, 20 different villages still harvesting for the same operations for the same company. So defining and creating the rules that do mean that the trade is equitable is actually really difficult and very important. And then, of course, it's about economical sustainability as well. So ensuring that the producer enterprise as well as buyer are benefiting in a long-term way from wild harvesting. So a unique standard that's focusing really on defining what is, you know, what does sustainability of wild harvesting mean in practice? And I think, you know, uh, in my in an interview with Joseph, he said rigor is very important and, you know, the whole ecosystem is important because, uh, right. you know, the links, um, you can't just focus on one link because they're all interrelated somehow. Precisely, precisely. And I think we had we had time and again, you know, this is demonstrated by each case where fair wild standard is used, you know, whether it's um, um, in a situation where, you know, species are harvested from an area which also hosts, you know, largest elephant population in the world, where, where genuinely um, through sustainable use of, of plant resources and people benefiting from this area, you can demonstrate good practices and can also demonstrate that there is the interactions between people and other wildlife is um, is positive, right? There is a great example of a fire wild project in India, which is just such a wonderful story. Um, the this this um, this project is in Western Ghats, so one of the world's most biodiverse area in the world, and what it means is that. It's got an incredible rich diversity of species. It's area that is so important for conservation. The, the Fairwild project is all about ensuring that the standing trees that the fruits are harvested from are standing. And actually the project started very much by a local partner there as a climate change project, because it was about ensuring that these trees are, are, are keeping the carbons within them. But one of the side impacts of the project is that the trees are also nesting sites for two species of hornbills. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And so it creates this incredible kind of loop between sustainable harvesting of, of, of fruit, which means the trees are standing, which means that the harvest, uh, the, the sides for hornbills are, are preserved as well. And it just shows in a, you know, in a very small example how things are interconnected. And it could be on, on lots smaller things, but you know, I think this is, this is such an important integral part of what Firewild is requiring. Firewild is requiring that there is a management plan and resource inventory is done for the species, which creates that, you know, baselines for rigor, baselines for assurance for companies to, to demonstrate the sustainability of their practices. Mm -hmm. And that's really great. And especially with this environment of ESG, environmental, social governance and you know, how do you document it, right? Some of you might do a project, but you don't have a good way to measure or document it. So I think Fairwild does a great job there. And, you know, like you said, with a project in India or any of the Fairwild projects, I think one of the central things that I was reading the, you know, that triggered me, I was reading the other day that, you know, even with coffee and coffee producers in Indonesia, they were cutting down parts of the rainforest to grow coffee. But, you know, the key was really how do you get economic alignment so that the people at the local level have incentives to an economic ability to support the things that that align with our interests? Because at the end of the day, they have to eat, right? And if they can't eat, they're not going to do, you know, what's good for them in, you know, six months or a year, right? <laughs> Your tummy's hungry, you got to figure out something today. So I think that's great. And can you tell us a little bit more about why do you, does Fairwild include a social responsibility portion in their sustainability or ecological plan? A little bit more about that portion of it. Mm. Really, really important. As uh, and I started alluding to this um, when we talk about wild crafting or wild sourcing of of plant resources. Quite often, we're talking about some of the poorest people in the world involved in this trade. Um, this is a generalization because, of course, every case is very different. Mm -hmm. But um, at large, um, at large, wild harvesters are probably some of the you know most disadvantaged people around the world. Quite often, they would belong to ethnic minorities, um, indigenous people, and local communities that depend on you know surrounding environment for um, non-timber forest products, for medicinal plants, for mm -hmm. food, and so on. So. The social responsibility part of Fairwild is extremely important because you're right. I think enabling and providing incentives for people to be part of a sustainable system is extremely important. Fairwild has a few, a whole range of requirements that a producer operation and a buyer would need to comply with in order to meet the requirements of the standard. But it, it is all with the aim of ensuring this trade is equitable and also that people are paid fairly. So um, there are a few mechanisms that Fairwild Standard um, promotes. Um, one of them has to do with the pricing of the products. Again, enable people to actually benefit and have incentives because they're complying with the higher requirements uh, than organic, for example. Um, and there is another mechanism within the standard that's called Fairwild Premium Fund. And I think it's really, really important. It has been, it, I must say, it's probably one of the hardest parts to work out within implementing Fairwild system. You know, environmental sustainability 
people understand, especially for somebody like me who has more of a conservation background, this comes very naturally. Actually understanding how to make you know the social you know the social responsibility principles work is is actually a lot more you know a lot more less straightforward fairwild premium fund is requiring that the buyer is contributing funds on top of the pricing for the product that go towards the community development and there are multiple examples of the shapes and forms it takes because it has to be locally relevant and very importantly has to be decided by the collectors themselves Mm. So Wilson cannot come and say, well, this year I would like to invest into X. Collectors themselves as a group need to decide, you know, what is the appropriate way to use this additional funds. And over time we've seen, you know, it's it's a very interesting social cohesion mechanism as well, because, you know, as as I mentioned, quite often you have dispersed groups of collectors that don't necessarily kind of talk to each other. So this in some ways forces this decision making about funds um, and access to it and how to use it. Um, it can be used for healthcare purposes, it could be used for conservation purposes, it could be used for education. So we see the mix of this quite often used in, in firewall projects. Anastasia, tell me a little bit, tell me what's your favorite premium fund usage so far is, or, or one that comes to your mind. I think, I think where it has to do was, was healthcare or education just always obviously strikes a lot of kind of, um, um, you know, um, positive kind of reflection. Um, so, you know, in one case, it was, um, like a dental chair that was actually having a rotating sort of function because again we're talking about dispersed communities in some of these collection areas so ability for people not just access the healthcare but actually access it where it's convenient for the community has been a really good example um you know there are some examples that actually have all of these examples do have very specific locally appropriate cultural relevance and traditional relevance um in an example in india the Farewell Premium Fund has been invested in part, for example, to support the temple reconstruction. Again, because that was something, the the area where the project is implemented is in sacred groves. The the cultural and religious element of this is extremely important to local people. And so the decision, again, once it's made kind of collectively about the use of fund can can be deployed this way. Um, Sometimes, you know, quite often, you know, again, we're talking about, you know, quite often poor disadvantaged people uh you know in other cases there could be a contribution towards like winter expenses of fuel wood so th- there are so many different examples of it and and as i say it's it it sounds um it's it's difficult it's not an easy one to to crack but it's something i really encourage you know any buyer any company to do because i think whether or not you use directly firewall premium fund or look for ways to support the communities. I think having that dialogue and listening to where the funds are most needed is really, really constructive. Because they know better than we do, of course, because <laughs> it's for them. How do you think companies and brands can become better stewards of natural resources? Um, what do you think companies can do to sort of just become better stewards? Mm. You know, you, your first question here, you asked me um, about the percentage of wild plants that are used um, from wild crafting. Um, and for me, it's always such a striking number. The 60 to 90% is a lot of plant resources. And also, I think you're very right in terms of saying, well, it's they're quite often used in small 
quantities. So I feel that sometimes the the impression you get, I get from talking to some companies and brands is that this issue of wild harvesting sustainability isn't as important as some other issues. And it's completely understandable that companies have to deal with a lot of issues, you know, climate change and, Mm -hmm. you know, changing natural resources issues. So I think one thing I'd like to see quite a lot more action and stewardship happening is around this issue of wild resources sustainability. This is one of the areas where companies' business can be linked directly to the issues of biodiversity conservation. Imagine this, thinking about your supply chains and thinking about how it directly benefits some of those charismatic animals and beautiful plants and vulnerable people. So I think... You know, for me, unhiding some of these ingredients and supply chains in, you know, portfolio of products and paying special attention to, you know, wild harvesting sustainability is something we'd really like to see a lot more. Fairwild is a great way to demonstrate it. You know, use Fairwild as a standard. It's available out there. It's available, I think, in over 15 languages. It's something that is free resource. It's it's out there on the website. But I think even, you know, even before getting to Fairwild and its full implementation, I'd like to see a lot more responsibility and recognition by companies themselves of just how many wild plant resources they're using and for them to celebrate it. I think there is a lot of, you know, there is actually a lot of stigma once you start saying, you know, not maybe not wanting to say, well, we're actually using 50% of wild plant resources. You know, that's something that we should be celebrating because I think through that, we come to the issues of questions of, is it sustainable? You know, how to make it more sustainable, how to demonstrate to consumers that, um, you know, there are some good practices involved. So I think there is a lot, a lot, a lot that companies can do. Awesome. I think, you know, one of the things that I'm going to do when we recap this um, conversation with you is that we want to include a link to the Fairwall standard. And I, as with you, I strongly encourage people to read the Fairwall standard. At least they get conversant in what it could be, um, even if they may not be ready to adapt it today or do a project today. There's a lot of great information in there. And, you know, I can't wait to have you back or a colleague of yours to do a deep dive hopefully into our certified Fairwild Northern Sassandra project later this fall. All fingers crossed, um, our audit is scheduled for early October. So Let's hope COVID doesn't derail it. <laughs> fingers crossed, yes. Yes, yeah. for all the success to the project, yes. Well, thank you for coming on and staying late. And uh, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And it was such a great pleasure to catch up with you and uh happen to have to see you in a year or two now <laughs> yeah nice to nice to see you again wilson thanks for listening to learn more about the business of herbs and botanicals visit newherbs.com to keep listening to great episodes be sure to subscribe to this podcast in itunes google play amazon or spotify and make sure to give us a rating too